Welcome to the Journal of Community and Supportive Oncology podcast for the month September-October 2017. I'm Dr. David Henry. This month, our community translation section brings you an article on the pdl one targeting drug atezolizumab for non-small cell lung cancer and a discussion of lenalidomide as a standard of care for multiple myeloma maintenance. We have a review of palliative and supportive interventions to improve patient-related outcomes, enroll patients with cancer, and several original reports beginning with adverse events from systemic treatment of cancer and patient-reported quality of life, followed by the effect of centralizing breast cancer care in urban public hospitals. Two case reviews, one on the management of tonsillar carcinoma with advanced radiation and chemotherapy techniques, and then familial essential thrombocythemia associated with the JAK2V617F mutation in siblings. And then we conclude this month with a feature article about targeted therapies for breast cancer, so let's begin. pdl one targeting drug atezolizumab gets approval for non-small cell lung cancer in our community translation section by Dr. James Abram. The immune checkpoint inhibitor atezolizumab targets the program death receptor ligand L1 and therefore has a unique mechanism of action. Its recent approval for metastatic non-small cell lung cancer after failure of a platinum-containing regimen is its second approval following that for advanced urothelial carcinoma. This non-small cell lung cancer approval was based on findings from two trials comparing adalizumab to docetaxel in the second-line setting. Both studies showed significant improvement in overall survival in the atizolizumab group with a median overall survival in the Poplar trial of 12.6 versus 9.7 months while the OAK trial demonstrated 15.7 versus 10.3 months. The Poplar trial reached statistical significance only for those patients with the highest levels of pdl one expression, while this improvement in overall survival in the OAK trial did not depend on pdl one expression status. Most common adverse events from this drug were fatigue, poor appetite, dyspnea, cough, nausea, musculoskeletal pain, and constipation. Atezolizumab is the first FDA-approved drug that targets the pdl one ligand. It specifically blocks the interaction between PD-1 and B7-1 receptors and the pdl one ligand, thereby preventing PD-1-mediated T-cell suppression and augmenting the anti-tumor immune response. But this still leaves the interaction between PD-1 and pdl 2 ligand intact. This may then play an important role in limiting autoimmunity. Atezolizumab Atezolizumab is also designed to minimize binding to the FC receptors on target cells, thereby preventing antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. This drug merely binds the pdl one blocking its activity without killing the T-cells and inadvertently reducing anti-tumor immunity. A second community translation article is entitled Lenlitumab Becomes Standard of Care for Multiple Myeloma in the Maintenance Setting, also by Dr. James Abram. Lenalidomide, of course, trade name Revlimid, is now approved as maintenance therapy following autologous stem cell transplant in patients with myel- multiple myeloma. This approval was based on two randomized controlled trials that evaluated the efficacy and safety of lenalidomide in this setting. There was a significant progression-free survival advantage compared with placebo. The CALGB100104 trial demonstrated a median PFS, progression-free survival, improvement of 15 months, while the IFM 2005-02 trial demonstrated 
an improvement in PFS of 3.9 versus two years. Most common side effects in these two trials were neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, and these are most common in the first six months after beginning treatment and decline in frequency thereafter. Palliative and supportive interventions to improve patient-reported outcomes in rural residents with cancer by Dr. Stephanie Gilbertson-White and colleagues from the University of Iowa Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center, Iowa City. Palliative care and supportive care are designed to improve quality of life in patients with advanced cancer. People living in rural areas may have limited access to these services. A current study performed objective review of some eight studies in primarily rural areas with small sample sizes and a single group design. Taken together, however, these studies provided preliminary evidence that palliative care and supportive oncology interventions have a positive effect on physical and emotional symptoms of patients as well as quality of life. In addition, the interventions were positively reviewed by participants and had the potential to improve financial outcomes for individuals and society as well. Next, adverse events from systemic treatment of cancer and patient-reported quality of life by Dr. Vincente Valenti and colleagues from several, several cancer centers in Tarragona, Spain, as well as the Economics Department in Glasgow, Caledonia University, Glasgow, UK. Patients experiencing adverse events of treatment and general public view of the same treatments may differ. The current study compares the impact on quality of life reported by cancer patients who had actually experienced a particular adverse event with that envisioned by the general public who were offered the same treatment in theory. Five adverse events were selected, alopecia, actiform rash, oxaliplatin-associated peripheral neuropathy, diarrhea, and vomiting. 246 general public participants and 139 actual cancer patients were analyzed. Using a visual analog scale, the public perception of quality of life impairment for these treatments was significantly worse than the patients who had actually experienced them. The authors used the EQ-5D-5L tool to evaluate the subjective differences and believe this may be a useful tool going forward for evaluating adverse events in all cancer patients. But interestingly pointed out that perception of what might be an adverse event and actually participating in it and experiencing it might well differ. Next, the effect of centralizing breast cancer care in an urban public hospital by Dr. Margaret Kemeny from the Queens Cancer Center and Icon School of Medicine in Mount Sinai in New York. The idea here is postulated that quality of care and patient outcomes improve when cancer care is comprehensively centralized. In the lower socioeconomic status in New York City, this is often not the case, not centralized. In 2002, the Queens Cancer Center was established at Queens Hospital Center in the borough of Queens to coordinate oncology care. The study objective was to establish the breast cancer care changed after the establishment of such a center and such coordination. Retrospective chart review of all patients with stage 1, 2, or 3 breast cancer treated in 2000 before this was established and in 2008 after this comprehensive care center was established this was conducted. Several factors changed, including an increase in the number of patients diagnosed with early-stage breast cancer, increase in the use of lumpectomy, and increase in survival of patients with stage 3 cancer. Breast cancer patient care may be improved by centralizing and standardizing the approach to care 
following national guidelines. Next, a case discussion, the management of tonsillar carcinoma with advanced radiation therapy and chemotherapy techniques by Dr. Mark D'Andrea and colleagues from the University of Cancer and Diagnostic Center, Houston, Texas. Tonsillar carcinoma is the most common of the oropharyngeal cancers of the head and neck region after thyroid and larynx cancer. Squamous cell carcinoma is the most hist common histology. Traditionally, we've always known that alcohol and tobacco have been significant risk factors for development of tonsillar cancer. More recently, the highly oncogenic human papillomavirus, HPV, has emerged as an additional high-risk factor. Some two-thirds of patients present with tumors larger than two centimeter and often have regional nodal metastasis, but may have a paucity of symptoms. The authors used the case presentation technique to illustrate their current standard of care with excellent results. For example, in case one, the patient had a right tonsillar mass, T2 in size with N2B lymph nodes, involved giving him a stage 4A disease. Combined modality therapy with IMRT radiation and weekly carboplatin was given, followed by paclitaxel and docetaxel, adjuvant after radiation was completed. After 41 months, this patient sits without recurrence. A second case, a 49-year-old black male who presented with throat pain and had a larynx with an obstructing mass and ipsilateral neck lymph node measuring 3 centimeter. Biopsy of left tonsil revealed a squamous cell carcinoma. PET scan showed multiple large cervical nodes, giving him a T3N2 stage for 4A disease. PEG2 was inserted, and combined modality radiation chemotherapy with carboplatin and docetaxel were given up front. Following this therapy, the patient was no evidence of disease by PET scan and has been so for 40 months. And finally, their case three is a 53-year-old man with left-sided neck mass. Left tonsil and lymph node biopsies were positive for squamous cell histology. PET scan was positive in the same region for a stage T4N2, yielding 4A disease. Radiation and concurrent carboplatin were given with radiation and carboplatin docetaxel as an adjuvant given after the radiation. Some 46 months later, the patient is still no evidence of disease by exam and staging. The authors suggest their hyperfractionated conformal three-dimensional IMRT approach with concurrent chemotherapy can be delivered safely and effectively to patients with advanced tonsillar squamous cell carcinoma, and this approach is evolving in the NCCN guidelines. Next, familial essential thrombocythemia associated with JAK2V617F mutation in siblings by Lexi Sirota and Dr. Hal Gerstein from the Cancer Institute of Long Island, Great Neck, New York. This report describes the unusual circumstance of JAK2V617 mutation in a brother and sister who were both diagnosed with essential thrombocythemia. It is not believed that this JAK2 mutation occurs germline through families, but there does appear to be a haplotype unstable gene 46-1, which may grant a selective advantage to the development of the V617F JAK2 clone in a family who carries this genetic haplotype. There have been no reported cases to prove the JAK2 V617 and the, M and the MPL mutations are inherited through the germline. We conclude this podcast with a beautiful feature article by Dr. Jane DeLartigue entitled Targeted Therapies Forge Ahead in Multiple Breast Cancer Types. She begins her discussion with the clever header, HER2, What's New? Some 18 to 20% of breast cancers are HER2 positive. 
the most regulatory, the most recent regulatory approval in the HER2 space was for neratinib, a potent tyrosine kinase inhibitor, or TKI, inhibiting all members of the HER2 protein family. Based on the phase three extinet study, neratinib was granted approval for extended adjuvant treatment of HER2-positive patients with early breast cancer following treatment with trastuzumab. In a five-year analysis of this study, invasive disease-free survival was 90.4% in the neratinib group compared with 87.9% if placebo. While statistically significant, of course, this is not a large absolute difference. Combined HER2-targeting with trastuzumab and pertuzumab has already been approved for the neoadjuvant setting based on the Neosphere trial, but this double HER2-targeted therapy also demonstrated a six-month improvement in progression-free survival in the first-line metastatic session. Many of us remember the ASCO 2017 presentation of the Phase three Affinity trial evaluating chemotherapy, trastuzumab, with or without the addition of pertuzumab in the adjuvant setting. While this study was significantly positive, the overall difference was quite small. Those patients with lymph node positive and or estrogen receptor negative, however, did derive a greater benefit. Moving on to the CDK4-6 inhibitor space, we already have palbociclib approved for HER2-negative estrogen receptor-positive advanced breast cancer in combination with letrozole since 2015. But a second CDK4-6 inhibitor hit the market recently, ribociclib, with a significant progression-free survival benefit in combination with letrozole 25.3 versus 16 months. And finally, abimeclociclib, which has greatest activity for the CD4K6 and its predecessors, has just received FDA approval thanks to the Monarch 2 trial showing a significant improvement in PFS with the combination of abimeclociclib and fulvestrant 16.4 versus 9.3 months. And finally, the PARP inhibitors, of course, standing for the very cumbersome poly-ADP ribose polymerase enzyme inhibitor family, continues to try and make a difference in breast cancer. The randomized phase three trial of the PARP inhibitor Laparib in the Olympiad study was compared to standard chemotherapy in patients with a BRCA1 or 2 mutation in the metastatic setting. Laparib reduced the risk of disease progression by 42% compared with standard chemotherapy and was very well tolerated. A second PARP inhibitor, Tazilaparib, was presented at the phase two Abrazo trial at ASCO 2017 and was positive, perhaps leading to its approval in the near future. Unfortunately, PARP inhibitors have not enjoyed much success in the BRCA1 or 2 negative patient who is triple negative. And that concludes this month's podcast for September, October 2017 for the Journal of Community and Supportive Oncology. We welcome your comments and suggestions, so please visit us at our website, jcso-online.com. That's jcso-online.com. You can search for archived issues, current articles, and or leave comments. And of course, we thank you for listening.